Well, good evening and welcome. If you haven't been here in the past, this is a pretty long, intense night. Uh, we have three sessions. We close with communion, and I try to time it so we end somewhere around midnight so that we can start the New Year's with a new perspective. And uh, a big part of that is looking at biblical prophecy in light of the events that we see taking place in the world. And for someone like me, the great challenge in doing this is that um, in one evening, this started out years ago as a one-hour message, and over time it grew into a three-hour message, and now it's at a place where uh, this could easily go on for a week or so, <laughs> because biblical prophecy is complicated. And it's interesting, it's complicated because it's speaking about the future. And there's a lot of speculation, and sometimes there's some sensationalizing, sensationalizing I should say. And I try to avoid that. I try not to say, well, this is what's going to happen, because I've been in the Word of God for 45-plus years, and I've come to realize that a lot of things that we're certain about in terms of biblical prophecy and, and views of how they can be fulfilled uh, can change pretty dramatically. Now, having said that, I would like to also add that there's probably never been a time in human history... No, let me take away probably. That's too evasive. Absolutely, there's never been a time in human history where we could say with more certainty that it's the fulfillment of the biblical prophecies in the most literal way that we could understand them could take place. And particularly when we talk about things like the mark of the beast, which I won't really be getting into this evening, but if you talk about something like that, just the technological advances that we see in our world today uh, come at a time in which suddenly the idea of people being bonded together in one kind of economic unit um, could never really literally happened prior to the time in which we live today. We're in that time phrase, and so so many of those things are like that. But I just wanted to give you fair notice that what I do is I always try to spend time in the months leading up to this deciding what is going to be the focal point of what I'm going to be speaking on tonight. <clears throat> and I've been spending uh, the last week, uh, almost every day, all day, really doing the research and putting this together. And I hope it comes across in, in simple enough terms, but also a clear enough way that it becomes something that you can really use throughout the next year. Because if the information that I share with you tonight isn't usable in terms of your daily life, then I probably have missed my target. Where I would like to begin is by reading uh, Matthew, most of Matthew chapter 24. If you don't mind turning in your Bibles there, I want to begin by laying kind of a biblical foundation to our conversation. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in the third verse, I'm going to read on down through the verse 39. And uh, because you're going to need to be able to redistribute the oxyhemoglobins in your body, uh, why don't you stand with me if that's comfortable for you. If it's not, please remain seated. Or if you just want to tell me you can't, I can't tell you what to do, you can stay seated as well. <laughs> But um, would you follow along with me as I read through this passage, beginning in verse 3. It says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The first part of that question is, when will this happen, is in reference to the destruction of the temple. The second part of the question was the signs, obviously, of his return in the establishment of his earthly kingdom, we refer to as the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus answered, in verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow old or excuse me, grow cold, but he who stands firm in the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
So when you see standing in the holy place, referring to the holiest place in the temple in Jerusalem, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time, so if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, <clears throat> do not go out, for he is... Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation, that is the generation that sees these things, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood... People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Would you join me with a word of prayer? Father, I ask as we <clears throat> dedicate this evening to you, that your Holy Spirit would really manifest your promised presence here with us, that you'd speak to our hearts not only collectively, Lord, but also individually. You spoke about the hope of your coming as being the hope that purifies us, as the hope that really kind of clarifies our understanding and, our, and brings our motives into alignment with your own. So God, I pray that you would just open our eyes and ears that we might hear with clarity the things that your spirit would say. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in this chapter, Jesus answered, as we said in the beginning, his disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What he did was he used a metaphor of gestation, you know, of birth and conception and birth, and he basically divided the future into what I would say is four separate phases, one building upon the other, four phases and essentials that were increasing in intensity as they drew nearer and nearer to the end. And you can see the parallel with a woman who conceives and then she begins to uh, grow in the gestation process and then eventually goes into labor, into hard labor, and then eventually delivers. And he begins by saying that following his... Uh, resurrection, that he says, it would be as it was in the days of Noah. In other words, he said, if you look at the world around you, basically he said people in those days were eating, drinking, and marriage, marrying, and giving in marriage. There was nothing that stood out. In fact, one of the things that Peter said in his second letter to the churches was that in the end times that people would be mocking the idea of the second coming of Christ and would be saying everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's any different. The sun rises, the sun sets, the planets circle, circle the, the universe, and everything is pretty much the way it has always been. 
But what we also find in reading the New Testament is that from the moment that Jesus was born, there came, as John said in John 4, 3, the spirit of Antichrist that came into the world. The moment that Christ became manifest, there was an Antichrist moment, if you will, that began to apply itself to all human history. That as Satan came to the realization, I assume, that rather than defeating the plan of God, he had only furthered it by delivering Christ over for death on the cross. His intensity from that moment on was to do everything in his power to stop what God said was inevitable. And to us, that might seem like kind of madness because the definition by some people of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and each time expecting a different result. And essentially, that's where Satan's madness has taken him, if I can put him into human terms, that he essentially continues to do everything he can to defeat the plan of God, even though God very clearly has made it, stated that there is nothing that can hinder it. And I think that's a perspective that we need to take when we try to, when we begin to understand biblical prophecy and we begin to look at the events around us. Because the tendency many times is to figure out, this is a bad thing that's happening, what can I do to stop it or reverse it? And we can begin to drift into a kind of activism, not realizing that on one level, Jesus said, look, these things are going to happen. My word will not pass away. These things are going to transpire. And there's nothing that is humanly possible. Even the demons of hell don't have the possibility of stopping what God has planned. But he said at some point in there, he said there would be a secondary phase, which he called the beginning of birth pains. And he said at that time that there would be rise up false Christ. There'd be wars. There'd be rumors of wars. Nation rising against nation, famines and earthquakes. And it seems like the implication is that these would begin to come with increasing intensity. Those things have always been there. There have always been wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising against each other and all the rest, famines, pestilences, and so forth. And many of them have been horrific in their, in their impact upon the world. But the point that he seems to be implying here is that as we begin to come into the end of history, we're going to see an ever-increasing intensity Almost as if people, things are just going to have a, a certain predictability and then all of a sudden things are going to begin to happen faster and faster and faster. And then comes thirdly, what I simply refer to as the onset of hard labor. Where Jesus said that the church would be persecuted, the believers would be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations. It's interesting because uh, one psychologist recently said that there is a view that's growing within, this, within the therapeutic community that anybody who holds absolute ideas, in other words, they believe that there are certain things that are absolutely true, are essentially mentally ill. In other words, if you say, I believe in this with all of my heart, that's a sign of mental disease and it needs to be treated either through therapy or through medications. In fact, even within our school system, one uh, California attorney, Robert Tyler, made the point, he said, the disapproval and hostility that Christian students have come to experience in our nation's public schools has become epidemic. Now, we look at that and we think, well, this is un-American, somebody ought to do something, but the whole point is that we should recognize that this is going to be the character of human events for the church as the end of this era of human history draws closer and closer. And we need to prepare ourselves because as he goes on, Jesus says that many will turn away from the faith. Now, there's some who feel that as we get near the end, there will be a great revival. And I certainly hope there will be a great turning to Christ. But over and over again, the scriptures seem to indicate just the opposite pattern, that there will be many who profess to be believers but when there comes a high cost to their faith, that they're going to walk away from the faith and they're going to deny their faith because of that hostility. In fact, Paul made that comment in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, where he says, let no one in any way deceive you for it, speaking of the Antichrist, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction or perdition. That apostasy, simply the word means a falling away, a departure from the faith. That there's going to be people who are going to suddenly find themselves 
suffering, and they're going to walk away from the faith. Here again, this is not something that's historically unusual. We find that through the first 300 years of the church, especially when Rome was in a highly uh, antithetical relationship with the church, that you know, 10 consistent, 10, 10 persecutions that took place over a 250-year period so that Christians under Rome every 25 years could count on average of being some kind of major pogrom or persecution against the church. And one of the greatest things, uh, challenges that faced the church once Christianity became legal within the Roman Empire was what do we do, how do we respond to the millions, literally, who had walked away from the church, depart from the faith, and now that it was legal, we're wanting to come back and reintegrate into the church. And it was a really a major debate amongst the theologians, the pastors, and the leaders, and the bishops at that time. How do we respond to that? Because they turned their back on the gospel because of the hardship. Well, the end result was eventually they received them back into fellowship. But he said there will be many false prophets that will come. They'll appear to deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. In other words, the implication is that they are preaching a gospel that gives allowance to things that the Bible forbids. That basically the mindset of, I know the Bible says I shouldn't do this, but God understands my needs. And there's a moving away from any kind of dogmatic position, well, this is what the Bible says and I hold to that, to more of a flexible tolerance because the idea, well, you know, nobody's perfect, we all have flaws. Not that anybody questions that fact, but there's a difference between recognizing that you have flaws and giving permission to not do anything about it. And that's really where a dividing line comes. But I think most troubling, Jesus said, the love of most will grow cold. And the, the word love here is the agapao, it's the, where we get the idea of agape love, the love that God creates within our hearts for him and for other people. He says that cold, that love will begin to grow cold along the same lines as the church in Laodicea, who he said had become lukewarm. He said there would just be this, this cooling of their ardor for God, their desire for God. And as Jesus said in the parable of Sower, what would come instead was a desire for other things. It's not a complete rejection of God, not a re complete rejection of Christ. It's just, it's not the primary thing anymore. It's just part of my life, not central to my life. It no longer governs. It just simply is kind of a reference point or a footnote that I go to at times of need. And so then he says, then the end will come, the final stage, then the end will come. And he says something that's really kind of interesting, kind of peculiar to me. He says, then the end will come, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, for years, I've heard, I've taught, I've thought that what this simply said was that once we evangelize the entire world, then Christ will come. How many of us have heard this teaching? As I was reading this, what I think was in chronological context, I suddenly realized he said he's talking about what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. And in fact, that's exactly what Revelation 14, 6 says. It says that in, right in the middle of the Tribulation, at the three and a half year mark, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In other words, in the middle of the tribulation, the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world all at once. And what come, takes place at that middle point, we often talk about that seven years of tribulation, but it's the last three and a half years that we refer to as the Great Tribulation. The first three and a half years are as unpleasant as you can imagine anything on the earth ever being. But the last three and a half years are probably appropriately described as hell on earth. In fact, Jesus said, from then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. The emphaticness of the statement is meant to be notable. Then, in other words, he's simply saying, I don't know what you think you have seen or heard or read about or experienced in all of its horribleness. And there are many things in life that are in this world that are terrible and horrible. But he says, it doesn't even come close to what's going to happen. The ravages 
of earth, the ravages of people, uh, the multitudes, unbelievable numbers of people that will perish in the carnage that takes place. And he says, that as a, as a finally said, then the end will come. And the second coming of Christ, he makes it very clear, isn't going to be something that you're going to have to guess at. It's going to be very obvious. He says when he comes, the whole world is going to see him. Everybody's going to recognize him. And it's not, you know, the, the consciousness of Christ rising in the silence of your own mind in a meditative moment, you know. Uh, it's, it's going to be something that is going to blare and blast across the face of the earth all over, all at once, and it's going to be unmistakable. And at that moment, the fates of men will be sealed. We're living, as I said earlier, in a, in a unique time, I believe, in human history. And I, granted, if you study church history and you study the teachings of the church through the years, you find that Every generation has believed that Christ's coming is imminent in their generation. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. Because as John said in 1 John 3, 3, he said, that's a, it's the hope that purifies us. This reality that one day I'm going to be caught up to be with the Lord is something that brings a certain level of sobriety into my soul, into an awareness into my life that I am only here temporarily, that this isn't my last resting place. And I think that in many ways, God intended us to live in that anticipation. He simply said, you don't know when I'm coming, so you should live as if it is any moment. And so with that expectation and that in, in appearance, he says to, in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his own generation that you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And so I think it's really God's intention for us to be looking into our world and looking to the future and saying, God, are these things that are leading us in the paths that you want us to go to? But we have to be careful. And I, I always share this every year because I find that for some reason, many of us are not careful about this. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows. No one knows when the end is going to come. We just know that it will be. But as I said before, I don't think there's ever been another time in history wherein the things that Jesus talked about could so literally and actually come about, specifically in the presence of three dynamics that I see as, I would describe them almost like convergent streams. They're like mighty rivers that have flown through human history. And there have been myriads of attempts by various people to kind of bring these three streams together to create a one world government, if you will. And they are essentially the idea of uh, an international world governance. There'd be one world government, there would be one world economy, there would be one world religious system. And history is pockmarked with individuals who have attempted to bring this to pass. And they have failed over and over again even though some have seemed to be close to accomplishing it. It probably doesn't surprise you that during World War II, it was clearly believed and taught by many Christian churches, especially in America and Canada and the West, that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. He was the abomination of desolation. And for good reason, because if there is anyone who was ever possessed by the spirit of Antichrist, he would be a primary candidate. He was definitely an antichrist personality. He just wasn't the antichrist. My interpretation of that is throughout history, Satan has repeatedly tried to bring to pass his satanic rule over the earth, and he's been looking for individuals. So whether we're talking about a Napoleon, well, unless you're French, French still tend to think see him as a hero. But anyway, uh, or or whether or it's a Genghis Khan or an Attila the Hun or Gaius Caesar, or you just go through the list of individuals who have attempted to basically rule and to conquer and thereby rule the entire world. There have been many, many candidates, but none of them has succeeded because they don't have ultimately the control. The control is in God's hands. God holds him. And what they often try to promote is what are called a new world order. Now, there will not be a new world order, although tonight I want to talk about people who are seriously, seriously, energetically working towards establishing it. And we're not talking about some wackos in a teepee up in Montana smoking pot. 
we're talking people in the highest places of authority and power and wealth around the world today who are absolutely as serious as a heart attack and are bringing it to pass in ways that I'm amazed that most people don't seem to even begin to recognize. One world government known variously as globalism or transnationalism and internationalism is now more popularly referred to as simply being the new world order. Now, one of the things that Jesus promised was that he was going to bring in a new world order. Revelations 21.4, he says, when Christ comes and sets his kingdom upon the earth, the old order of things will pass away. The order of sin and death will pass away. And so there will be a new world order one day when Christ reigns upon the earth. But what is referred to as the new world order is really nothing more than a 92 Honda Civic with a paint job. You know, they didn't even change the upholstery. It's, it's still a piece of junk that's just kind of rattling down the road. Or maybe I should have used a Yugo instead. But the idea is that this renovation or changing or fixing the world and all the promises that go with it aren't going to really change anything at all. All it's going to be is a really a consolidating of power in the hands of a select few. Not only have megalomaniacs been pursuing this throughout history, but there have been many sane people who have been dedicated to the process. Major visionaries, people we call them progressive thinkers, intellectuals. I mean, we can go back even to recent history, back into the 17th century and forward, and find an unbelievable list of people who said the answer is a new world order. And these, believe, these elites believe that this and this alone will address the global issues of war, poverty, and injustice. And that's really the attraction. How do we address these unresolvable issues that have plagued humanity since the beginning of time? Part of this, of course, ties into the idea of one world economy. And, and in many ways, really honestly, we're already there. If you've been with me through any of these sessions in the past, I've often spent a lot of time talking about the changes in the structure of the economy. But uh, Joseph Kennedy, uh, uh, President Kennedy's, uh, John Kennedy's father, who was uh, a very successful bootlegger and later a very successful businessman and, and was the uh, ambassador to London, uh, once said that the entire world is run by 50 men. And that was back in the, the, uh, the 40s when he said that. I think how much more true that may be today. But essentially, we don't have a segmented economy. We all kind of understand that, don't we? That everything is integrated. That when I go online to order something, it can come from the far-flung reaches of the world. It's just kind of amazing to me. I remember getting a call from my credit card company one time asking me if I had, been, had purchased anything in London recently. And since I hadn't been to London in two or three years, I thought, well, this is probably not me. And so I, I called them up, and they said, well, there's a charge for $3, and that went through, and there was a charge for $300 at Tedesco, which is, Tedesco is kind of a, a grocery store in, in, in London, and uh, was that you? I said, no, it wasn't me. But it really struck me at that moment how that there's this, this global integration of our economies. And, you know, I, I was going to refuse the charges, but I need the groceries, so I took them. But the bottom line is, it, it's, it's, we understand these dynamics, right? We, we, we don't have to really talk a lot about that. Because even when we talk about different currencies, essentially that exists on paper. Just a very small percentage of dollars actually exist in the real world. They are points, they're numbers on a ledger sheet. They're not actually things that are held in hand. That gold reserves don't even come close to the re economic reserves of nations. In other words, the whole point is that we have this very fluid economic system that operates through computers, through algorithms, that essentially make dollars and cents um, just more of a myth than a reality. But one of the things that we're told is that no one will be able to buy or sell unless they have the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of the name. And there's endless speculation and some good ideas and real possibilities as to what that could be. 
My latest candidate for the mark of the beast is, a, is nothing more than a little tattoo, a microchip tattoo that you stick on your hand and it actually absorbs into your skin. If you want a Seahawk tattoo on your hand, you could have the Seahawks or whatever you want. But in fact, it is a microchip that's powered by the electronic uh, impulses of your own body and it can be read and has all of your data information on it. And you look at something like that and say, well, it's something you can wear on your forehead, something you can keep on your hand. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. I just want to say, I don't know that that's actually the mark of the beast. Um, <clears throat> because I know people who wouldn't take debit cards because they were convinced that was the mark of the beast. So we, we know that something is coming, but I think we have to leave our, our minds a little bit open to saying the technological possibilities are there, but we are not necessarily certain what they are. Because the real mark of the beast, the thing that really separates it is that in order to participate in the economic system of the world is that you have to worship the beast as God, which leads us to the third dynamic, the third stream, and that is one world religion. In Revelation 13, 15, it makes this statement. It talks about the world leader, the Antichrist or the beast or whatever you want to call him. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image. So that there's a, a spiritual dynamic which we'll talk about probably in our last session tonight, which is really kind of even surprising to me that's, that's taking place, how subtly it's just kind of grasping people's uh, imagination and thoughts and people are being moved into these streams. But again, my point is that throughout history, there have been these three streams that have really controlled human society. That is of governance, of economy, and religion. And they've never been quite able to merge all of them together, at least for any large enough impact. And yet we live in a day and age where not only is that happening, but it's happening with a great deal of enthusiasm and to a degree that quite honestly is shocking to me. Now, you and I might sit back and say, well, why in the world would anybody sign up for something like this? And the answer is simply because, well, what's the next slide, if I remember correctly? I've got about 400 of them. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> yes, Brown and Cameron were uh, the, uh, you can leave that up there if you want. It's, it's okay. I, I don't mind. I, I won't take it personally. Okay. Um, both of them were prime ministers of England, and basically they came out and said, there's a new world order, and the purpose of the new world order is to save the world. Now, these guys aren't slouches. I mean, these are world leaders. These are men of great significance and importance. They govern over uh, the nation, which has a city, London. London is the economic capital of the world. I don't know if you're aware of that. It is the financial capital of the world. And essentially what they were saying is there needs to be a new world order in order to save the earth, to save the planet. So that these guys, rather than thinking they're being just diabolical characters, you have to understand that they are deceived. They're not diabolical. That they are men who are basically, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.26, he said, they have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And the reason I emphasize that is because sometimes we focus on the wrong enemy. We, we look at politicians and statesmen and financiers and these guys, and we, we, we see them as being these wicked, evil guys. Can I suggest to you, I just want to suggest to you, that these guys really believe that they're doing the right and the good thing, that they really believe. Maybe they suffer from a messianic complex, uh, granted, they may have grandiose concepts and narcissistic personalities and all the rest, but at the end of the day is they actually are completely convinced. Now, I say this because I was watching a, an argument between Bill O'Reilly and, and Charles Krauthammer about what motivates our current president. And Bill O'Reilly said, total incompetence <laughs> was his response. Um, <clears throat> but he's not a dumb guy. I, I, just, I just want to go on record and say, he's this, our president isn't a dumb guy. He's a, you don't get to where you're at without being smart. Krauthammer said, who happens to be also a psychiatrist as well as a journalist and who understands things, says, it's not incompetence, it's ideology. He really, really believes that he's doing the best. This is why if we take the approach of people who are embracing these things of just attacking 
their character and, and calling them names and getting angry and hateful and spiteful towards them, uh, two things are going to happen. One is people aren't going to want to listen to you who, who agree with them. But secondly, it's going to sour you. And probably what you won't do is really pray for their souls. I just wonder, and I won't take a poll here because it might be too embarrassing for all of us, but I just wonder how many of us actually pray for leaders who are making these decisions and really ask God to bring them to Christ. You know that Paul actually gave that exhortation in Romans. He said, pray for the king. Who was the king when Paul wrote that? Caesar, Caesar Nero. He was, this guy, talking about a maniac. Paul said, pray for the king. Pray for him. And I think that, you know, you know, no matter what you think about the current administration, he hasn't even gotten close yet to where uh, Nero was. But nonetheless, the enemy here is Satan. This is coming out of hell. <laughs> this isn't, and these men are taken captive to do his will. And that's why the only weapon we have to respond with is our prayers. Prayers not only for these men and women's souls, but also prayers for the people around us that they might come to Christ. But let me continue on. Who believes that one world government is the answer to the world's problems? You'd be surprised. Albert Einstein <laughs> in an open letter to the General Assembly of the United Nations in 1947, said essentially the final aim is one world, not a partial world government. The only real step towards world government is world government itself. James Paul Warburg, who actually his father, uh, Paul Warburg, was the founder of the Federal Reserve System, which I know many of you love, um, but he himself was also a banker, a financier, um, and he was... He was giving testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1950, and he said, we shall have world government whether or not we like it. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by conquest or by consent. Now, at the time, the senators who were listening to his testimony were thinking, that's fine because we're the most powerful entity on the planet and we'll run the world. You know, that, that's kind of their perspective. Yeah, we'll have world government and we will be in charge of the world government. But I don't think biblically that's what's going to happen. By the 1960s, the, the, the rhetoric began to move away from kind of the off-putting term of world government. And its proponents began to use a more subtle, more or less offensive term called a new world order. It, it sounds more harmless, you know. It's, it's like, it sounds more like you're just going to rearrange the deck on the, the chairs in the Titanic, you know, on the deck. It's not like you're going to actually sink the ship. But essentially, that's the goal. In fact, Robert Kennedy, who at the time was the Attorney General of the United States, made the comment. He says, all of us will ultimately be judged on the effort we have contributed to building a new world order. In other words, he's saying there's a moral imperative here <laughs> that we're going to be judged by history on what we did in order to achieve this goal. Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State under Richard Nixon and is still one of the most highly respected statesmen in the world, said there will be a new world order and it will force the United States to change its perceptions. <clears throat> Walter Cronkite, who... Uh, <laughs> was probably one of the most authoritative voices in America through, from about 1950 to 1970, simply said in his book, A Reporter's Life, his biography, if we are to avoid catastrophe, okay? Anybody not want to avoid catastrophe? I mean, I'm on for that. I want to avoid catastrophe. If we're going to avoid catastrophe, a system of world order preferably a system of world government, is mandatory. This isn't even an option. The proud nations someday will yield up their precious sovereignty. Now, sovereignty refers to, when talking about the political dynamic or national dynamic, means that you have the ability of self-determination. A nation can determine its own fate and direction based upon, uh, in relationship to other nations, and other peoples around the world, he says, that's got to go. You've got to give up that ability to make your own choices, that ability to decide how your borders are going to be fixed and how you're going to sustain those borders and who can come in and who can go out. That has to go. 
Strobe Talbot was one of my favorite. <clears throat> he was a deputy secretary of state under Bill Clinton and uh, uh, very, very active. In fact, he made this statement while he was still deputy secretary of state. He says, in the next century, that is speaking of the 21st century, which we are now in today, nations as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority and realize national sovereignty wasn't such a great deal after all. National sovereignty wasn't such a great deal after all. How many times do you wake up in the morning and say, gee, I wish I didn't live in the United States. Man, I wish I could live in Mexico. <laughs> you know, I know. Now, if you're Canadian, I get it. You're just the 51st state anyway. You don't know the difference. But anyway, but, but and then there's everybody's favorite, Al Gore who in the London Times said, regarding what he called the, the crisis of man-made global warming, uh, he says, but it is the awareness itself that will drive the change, and one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. Uh, I guess for Al, he couldn't become president of the world, or in the United States, he wanted to become president of the world, and you know, but also people like Pope John Paul II. I mean, this is... Uh, he said, by the end of this decade, we will live under the first one-world government that has ever existed in the society of nations, a government with absolute authority to decide the basic issues of survival. One-world government is inevitable. So here's a spiritual leader when he was alive of over a billion people on the planet, and he says, this is an inevitability. Our current president, Barack, Barack Hussein Obama, said uh, not too long ago, he said, part of people's concern is just the sense that around the world the old order isn't holding. And we're not quite yet to where we need to be in terms of a new order that's based on a different set of principles, that's based on a sense of common humanity, that's based on economies that work for all people. All nations must come together to build a stronger global regime. Now, we hear these things, and, and, and this is a man who's a very fluid speaker, and it's, it's, it, there's almost a, a narcotic effect when you listen to him talking. It kind of lulls you in a sense of, he just you know, feels comfortable and safe. And you really have to listen to words. I mean, words matter, and they're picked very carefully. These aren't things that just kind of, you know, they're not, he's not like me. He doesn't just pop off something that comes to his head. I mean, he really thinks this stuff through, right? And these are, words are chosen very specifically so that when you say things that there needs to be a new order that's based upon a different set of principles. Now, what does the word principles mean? Principle means a basis of truth, something that you believe in because it's true. In other words, we need to alter our basis of what is true, what is real. It needs to basically uh, represent a, um, he says, a, a, a different set of principles. So things like the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Bible, these are often documents that represent what people believe to be truth. We need a different set of documents that tell us what is true and what is not. These are, in many ways, these are just striking things to hear from uh, the President of the United States when he talks about new com commonalities, which is a way of saying the things that bring us together. We need to be brought together around a whole new set of differences. And particularly, we need to get rid of the idea of nationalism and, and patriotism and, and the idea that uh, religious differences. We need to be brought together under a new set of criteria that we're unified under different sets of purposes and objectives. And even new economies. Well, and we'll get into what that means in a minute. But it's interesting because there's an organization called the Trilateral Commission and very highly respected organization. And this actually is part of their goals. I mean, what is the Trilateral Commission? Well, it's an international organization. It has uh, 390 members. It has allowance for 3,000 members, but it only has 390 people who are actually uh, chosen. You can't just join. You have to be invited to be part of it. And um, 
80 of these individuals live in the United States. So uh, 310 of them live in different parts of the world, in Asia and Europe pri primarily. And uh, uh, they were founded by uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. I don't know how many of you remember Zbigniew, but he was the Secretary of the State of the United States under Jimmy Carter. I don't know how many of you remember who Jimmy Carter was. He was a peanut who was a farmer. No. Anyway, but uh, he was one of the founders of the Trilateral Commission in 1973. Um, and he explained, he said, the trilateral plan is calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading toward the goal of one world government. National sovereignty, in other words, individual states, is no longer a viable concept. He co-founded this with one of the wealthiest men in the world, one of the most economically and powerful and influential men, a man by the name of David Rockefeller, the uh, president of Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, Standard Oil. And um, he made the statement, he said at the same time, we are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept the new world order. All we need is the right crisis. We'll go into that in a bit more. So that in the founding declarations, if you go on their website, they do have a website, and you read their, basically their, their statements, you'll find that their founding declaration that they wrote, part of the statement is, the growing interdependence is a fact of life of the contemporary world. It transcends national systems. Again, that's uh, a very pretty clear way of saying it, it, an end to the idea of sovereign states. Now, how, how influential is this trilateral commission? Well, let's consider a few of the American members of this organization. Many of them uh, you don't know. I, I assume you wouldn't know unless you were involved in, in a lot of government and financial things. But uh, <clears throat> most notable, Bill Clinton, Henry Kissinger, uh, John Negroponte, who is the former director of national intelligence and also former ambassador uh, to the United Nations and a former ambassador to Iraq during the uh, <coughs> Iraq conflict. There was uh, John Podesta, who was a former chief of staff for President Clinton and now is the head of the Hillary Clinton uh, presidential campaign. Um, Condoleezza Rice, former secretary of state. Colin Powell, former secretary of state. George Tenet, former director of the CIA. George Stephanopoulos, Steph <laughs> always have trouble with that name. I keep on getting a character from Sesame Street in my head. Uh, George Stephanopoulos, Robert Zolik, who is the president of the World Bank, uh, Brent Skrokoff, who is the, an unofficial advisor today uh, to uh, President Obama, uh, Richard N. Haas, also an advisor to the president and also the president of the Council on Foreign Relationships, with, relations, which we'll talk about more in just a few moments. But within 10 days after President Obama became, took office in, in 2008, he appointed 11 members of the Trilateral Commission out of the 87 or 90 that are in the US, basically 12% of the Trilateral Commission members in the United States, he appointed them to top level government positions in his administration beginning with the Secretary of Treasury, which is Tim Geithner, uh, Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Susan Rice, who is still there, uh, National Security Advisor, James L. Jones, Deputy National Security Advisor, uh, Thomas Donilon, uh, Chairman of the Economic Recovery Committee, uh, Paul Volcker, one of the most respected uh, economists in the world, uh, Director of National Intelligence, Admiral Dennis C. Blair, Assistant Secretary of State for Asia and Pacific, Kurt M. Campbell, Deputy Secretary of State, James Steinberg, State Department Special Envoy, Richard Pass, again, part of the, uh, um, the head of the Council of Foreign Relationships, um, the State Department Special Envoy Dennis Ross, State Department Special Envoy Richard Holbrook, and on and on the list goes. And again, what I'm saying, these are some of the most highly placed, most influential, important people in both Republican and Democratic circles in the United States today. They are all members of an organization which has clearly stated that their goal is to bring to an end the idea of national individual sovereignty and work towards one world government. In fact, even Zbigniew Brzezinski, one of the co-founders of the Trilateral Commission, is also uh, President Obama's principal advisor on foreign affairs. That's why he's brought the success of the Carter administration into the Obama administration. 
You know, there's, there, there's a problem when you have, a man serves for seven years, he has uh, uh, four different uh, secretaries of defense, and three of them have come out publicly condemning his foreign policy, <laughs> his approach to it, and uh, the only one that hasn't is the guy who has the job now, and we'll talk about him a little bit too. So what is going to be the vehicle for really implementing this idea of one world governance? If you've listened to prophecy conversations over the years, you've heard you know, the gamut. We've, we've, for years, we've focused upon the European Union because essentially the, um, the UN for many years became just a, really a gathering of the usual suspects. Um, a lot of incompetency, conflict, lack of coordination. There was just a place where nations um, basically went to, uh, to agree to be disagreeable with each other. That's changed, by the way. In fact, in an article in the New American in 2009, Lord Christopher Monckton, who was the former science advisor to the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, uh, delivered a scathing refutation of the concept of human-caused global warming at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And in his presentation, he focused on the UN climate treaty that was being proposed at the time for the United States climate change. Uh, the conference was held in Copenhagen. That was before the most recent one, which was held in Paris. Uh, this was the one in Copenhagen. Uh, he, and he basically said, I read that treaty, and what it says is this, that a world government is going to be created. The word government actually appears as the first of the three purposes of this new entity. The second purpose is to transfer of wealth from the countries of the West to third world countries. And the third purpose of this new entity, this government, is enforcement. Enforcement, which is an interesting discussion. Now, how do you win the hearts and minds of people? Well, the United Nations actually came up with what they call Agenda 21. It's the United Nations agenda for the 21st century. And I have a, uh, it's actually, it's a nine minute clip that I want to show you and I'm believing God that it's going to actually work. Um, but it's, it's not the best produced. It's a kind of a compilation, but it was the most information within the shortest span of time that I thought I could possibly uh, direct towards you. So if we can run that clip, and I think it speaks for itself. Sustainable development has become the popularized expression for Agenda 21. Agenda 21 is the 1992 United Nations Rio Declaration on the environment and development. It is the agenda for the 21st century you're living in today. For a brave new world where everything that you cherished and held true will no longer exist. Agenda 21 defines itself as the comprehensive plan of action to be taken globally, nationally, and locally by organizations of the United Nations systems. It also elevates nature above man. And it contains something called the precautionary principle, where basically you're guilty until you're proven innocent. Sustainable development is the philosophy designed to bring human beings across the globe under the full control of a narrow human elite. It's a 40-chapter document to basically control the world. It's based entirely on socialist control mechanisms. Sustainable developers have designed a global movement coordinated through a global to local action plan to create world government in accordance with certain objectives. These objectives include an end to national sovereignty, the abolition of private property, the restructure of the family unit, and increasing limitations and restrictions on mobility and individual opportunity. The green goal includes the listings of what's not sustainable. A couple of the examples include private property. 728 lists fossil fuels. Golf courses and ski lodges are not. Consumerism. Irrigation is not sustainable. Paved roads. Commercial agriculture. Herbicides, pesticides. Elsewhere, it lists farmlands, pastures, grazing of livestock. In the family unit. The focus of sustainable development is the abolition of private property, 
societal undermining of the family and abandonment of the constitutional protection of unalienable rights as described in the Declaration of Independence. You see, I sat on the Santa Cruz Agenda 21 committees. Now, this was a lot of crazy ideas. This was back in the mid-90s. Crazy ideas, I heard. Mother Earth's surface wasn't to be scratched. Human beings were to be concentrated into human settlement zones. Educational systems were to focus on the environment as the central organizing principle. All aspects of life were, were covered. Well, I went to these committees at the request of some people who told me that I needed to understand what was going on, and I came back and I said, this is craziness. This is so silly. It has no chance of having any effect on our society. Well, I was wrong. The United States government's support for sustainable development, Agenda 21, is very clear. In 1992, while the Rio conference was going on, George Bush, then president, was there where he executed the Agenda 21 protocols on behalf of the United States and brought it back to Washington, D.C. Within a year, Bill Clinton, by executive order, no congressional review, established the President's Council for Sustainable Development. In Santa Cruz, We've got a two-lane freeway system. We need four, but what we're getting is hundreds of millions of dollars of federal money to take a dilapidated rail line that Southern Pacific wants to put in the hands of somebody else so that a commuter line can be built along the railroad track. That'll be followed by 14-story buildings where people will live and stack them and pack them units, where developers or so-called sustainable developers will build these high-rises with federal dollars. In fact, Santa Cruz has received a $300 million federal grant to build the first 3,000 of these stack and pack them units. The County Board of Supervisors has said, if you are a sustainable developer, you're immune from any construction defect liability. It's a partnership between selected developers building this new world order and the government using the American taxpayer dollars in order to do it. This is a map of the Wildlands Project. To explain the map, the red are areas that are to be off limits to human beings. No resource development, no human activity. If you live there, you won't. The yellow areas are the areas for major control of all human activity. If you live there, you won't. The black areas, the black dots, are the smart growth zones. That's where human beings are to be stacked and packed in small living units along rail tracks, the Smart Growth Program ultimately has jobs assigned and children cared for by the state. The question was, has been asked many times how uh, the people who are perpetrating these things expect to do this and make it last. And the answer to that is that you steal a generation of children and you indoctrinate them so that they accept these ideas and they become global citizens in the coming global village. UNESCO came out and declared 2005 to 2015 the decade of education for sustainable development. But they go on to say that it will encompass the 40 chapters of Agenda 21. That is your federal national curriculum. The entire purpose of second grade social studies is to transfer loyalty from the family to the government and teach them about sustainable economic consumption. Students construct their own understandings of reality and realize that objective reality is not knowable. So why bother? The truth is the truth which keep men free is being suppressed in order to prop up the attitude training agenda. And it moves on. This is our new uh, math called Connected Mathematics. Standard 3 tells us that students learn that mathematics is man-made, that it is arbitrary and good solutions are arrived at by consensus. Most of us assume 2 plus 2 is always going to equal 4. You're wrong. We might reach a new consensus. 
Uh, how well does it work? Well, they tell you. In the teacher's guide in the back, it tells us that because the curriculum doesn't emphasize arithmetic computations done by hand, some students may not do as well on tests assessing computational skills. We believe such a trade-off in the favor of CMP is very much to the student's advantage in the world of work. Our children are mathematically illiterate on purpose. How do I know on purpose? Why isn't this just a basic bad idea? Because the Sustainable Development Plan tells us so. Generally, more highly educated people who have higher incomes consume more resources than poorly educated people who tend to have lower incomes. In this case, more education increases the threat to sustainability. Charlotte Iserby, I owe you an apology. I did not believe for the longest time it was a deliberate dumbing down. I thought the dumbing down was a natural consequence of a bad idea. Folks, it's deliberate. It's deliberate. The sustainable globalist goal is the orchestration of a planned fall of American principles, values, and lifestyles. The effect on the average American will be devastating. With modernizing technology, the ordinary person will live without independence, privacy, or substantive rights. Another press conference that I attended was uh, the ICLEG group, the International Committee for Local Environmental Initiatives that helps in the implementation of Agenda 21 in all of our local communities. And um, one of the speakers was a Harvey Reuven, who happens to be the vice chair of ICLEG. And I asked him about the correlative rights that Americans derive from the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And that, of course, is your individual liberties, your private property, your you know, freedom of speech. Asked about it clashing with Agenda 21. And you know what his response was? Individual rights must take a back seat to the collective. <clears throat> One of the things that's been very... Um, surprising to me is that as I talk with younger people today and if you tend to get into talking about some of these things the response often is I don't care I don't care they don't see how it matters they don't see how it's significant when you have a generation that can't even identify who the vice president is well that's probably okay but it can't identify you know who their own congressman or congresswoman is, um, who understands anything about how the economy functions. I mean, you just go through the list. If you have, you know, teenagers at home, you, you've already encountered this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And so it, it's, the agenda has been fairly effectively executed. And when it comes down to when a populace only is concerned about how do they uh, really get the things that they want, they become stuff-oriented, you're going to be you're beginning to see the the end. Uh, last year, I talked about the the signs of, of of a collapsing culture, one that was in 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 rapid decay, and I went through the list of issues. And one of the things that always has stood out to me in that list that uh, Dr. John Glubb and and, uh, and um, <clears throat> uh, listed in that book from years ago was that he said when the most important people in the culture are musicians and actors. He said, then, and they don't know who the statesmen are, then the culture is in rapid decline, if not collapse. And so you, you realize that that's, we're, we're a culture that just thrives on entertainment. We just thrive on it. We have so many avenues. And we're basically simply hibernating and, and, and going into reclusion while the world rapidly changes around us. But I'm going to give you a break. Um, and I'm not going to charge you that much for it. <laughs> but I want to pick this up. I mean, again, how are they going to sell it to the rest of us? If they can convince the younger generation by simply programming, what about the rest of us, us older people who are going, wait a minute? <laughs> well, we'll talk about that.
Let's have a prayer and I'll let you take a break. Father God, I just pray that you'd help uh, these good people to absorb some of this stuff and absorb it the right way, Lord. I know there's a tendency for us to become reactive, uh, defensive, angry, and resentful, and all the rest, Lord. We just know that the wrath of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to really kind of process it and begin to recognize uh, what is happening to us, that we too have been much like the frog in the kettle that as the pot heats, it comes some so slowly that we don't even recognize it. Give us greater wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll catch you back here at, uh, I'm going to give you 45 minutes to take a break because the coffee line gets that long. Anyway, we'll be back at 9 o'clock. <laughs>